we have the communion meditation from Colossians. So two weeks ago, two weeks ago we were in Colossians 1, verses 19 through 23. And the title of the message uh, two weeks ago was Christ in place of us. And the title today is us in place of Christ. And so it's just the same words jumbled around, and yet significantly so. I, I think the text bears it out. I'll read now from Colossians 1, verses 24 to 26. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for having revealed this mystery to us, your children. And we thank you, Lord, that we now can uh, share in this knowledge what is it that you are opening up to us, what is it that you are telling us from your word. We give you thanks for your presence, for the sacrifice of your Son, and the promise of the Holy Spirit to continue to sanctify us until we uh, return home to glory, to be in your presence forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So the last message was Christ in place of us. Today it's us in place of Christ. We talked about Christ's uh, substitutionary, sacrificial atonement two weeks ago. And so today we're going to just cover three different aspects of verse, 34, uh, verse 24 alone. It's really only this one verse we're going to talk about. I just read you the whole context. And so verse 24 reads this. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, we need to make some things very clear. And when you reflect on suffering, it's really important to do this. You'll see these accusations. They're very common. And I think Christians really have to wrestle through such accusations that they might have in their own heart towards God. First, Paul said, I rejoice in my sufferings. Paul is not a masochist. He doesn't rejoice in being in physical pain as people are whipping him or beating him, or he's out in the midst of the sea suffering, hypothermia. He's not a masochist. He doesn't like this pain. It's not natural. It's not human for us to like this pain. So see, it must mean something else then when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. And by the same token that Paul is not a masochist, nor is he telling us that he wants us to be masochists, God is not a sadist. God does not find pleasure in our suffering, in and of our suffering. He doesn't want to see his children in pain, in agony, in suffering. So the reality, though, is that these things are true. We do suffer, and God mandates that we suffer. He mandated that Christ suffer. He mandates that Paul, the apostles, and many of his children throughout time will 
suffer. So it isn't the suffering in and of itself, though, that God derives pleasure from. So there's something else at work here. Paul says he rejoices in his suffering for you. So see, there's a goal to Paul's suffering. We can be, especially in physical pain, physical pain is just very disruptive to our normal thinking, to our normal way of living. It draws all of our attention and focus because God has designed us to have these nerve endings that convey pain, physical pain, to our brain and tell us, escape it. That's what physical pain does. God's given us this physical pain such that we escape it. When little children touch the stove, ah, now I know why mom and dad told me not to touch that. So see, it wasn't enough. Sometimes we don't heed instruction until we ourselves live through the consequences of having disobeyed it. Then we know. Now we know. Don't touch the hot pot. He said he was to fill up in his flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. That's what Paul rejoiced in his sufferings for you because he's filling up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Again, this is very difficult to understand, and the Roman Catholic Church has it wrong. They use this as a proof text in saying the sacrifice of Christ is not enough. It is not enough. God tells us it himself right here in his word. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. So see, it means something very special. It means something very unique. But it's not what the Roman Catholics say. And so we must understand what it is Paul is saying. First, this does not mean that Christ's death lacked anything in terms of making an atoning sacrifice for sin. We know this. There are many places in the Bible that teach this. Let me share one that I think is excellent in this regard. It's in Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, and I'll start reading at verse 11. Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So that's us. By that one offering, he has perfected forever all those who will ever be sanctified. And we are, praise God, of those. So we see here in Hebrews, and the writer of Hebrews just totally shows that Christ's death was sufficient, was sufficient to pay the price of our sins. Now, what does it mean then? It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that God wasn't satisfied. God is satisfied. What it does mean is that the church's ongoing sacrifice serves a God-given purpose. And let me read a proof text for that from 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, starting at verse 12. Beloved, 
Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part He is blasphemed, but on your part He is glorified. So the very same act of persecution redounds to our benefit God's praise and glory, and yet the blasphemer, the one who is partaking of this, is going to be condemned for it. The very same thing, the very same action has these different repercussions. I don't want to go into greater depth on suffering. I think we could cover several aspects, redemptive aspects of suffering, but that's really not the purpose of the text here. I just wanted to cover that one thing. These are very uh, potentially confusing and misleading phrases to you that you really need to be square in your head on. You need to understand what suffering is all about. And so I'm not going to go into great depth about that, but that's what it's about. It's about the fact that God finds value in it, and the fact that it is still being inflicted upon His church is because it is being inflicted upon His church, the body of Christ, in lieu of there being a, a physical Christ now on the earth to inflict it upon. So we are the body of Christ on earth to endure the ongoing persecutions from those that hate Christ. The suffering of the church through the individuals of the church results in strength. It strengthens the church. Uh, Tertullian, a second century Christian, was credited with this phrase. It's really a paraphrase from a book that he wrote. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. But we can confuse cause and effect in this. There is a cause and effect at work, and I think it's more biblical to say this. First, let me ask you two questions. Does the church grow because of persecution? Or does persecution come because of the growth of the church? See, it's more the latter that's occurring. Persecution comes when the church grows. And the persecution, God willing, will result in a strengthening of the church. But it can easily result in an extinguishing of the church in that community in which the persecution comes. If God does not regard the church as worthy to endure that persecution, it can extinguish the church in a community. That's what we see really going on throughout the West. We see the continual decline of the church. And yet where the church is growing is where the church is being persecuted most heavily. We perceive the attack upon our Western values in this country as an attack upon Christendom. And I would say that it's not primarily an attack upon Christendom. It's, a, it's an attack upon our way of life, surely. But yet, really, are they attacking the church? The church is so hollowed out in this country. It is not very evident. It reflects more our culture than our God. 
So this persecution that we feel, that we experience in this country, is it a persecution of God and His church, or is it a persecution of what we all hold dear, these Judeo-Christian ethics? You know, the one is derived from the other, but are we really sufficiently reflecting the glory of God in modern-day American culture to really be enduring persecution for the sake of God's glory? I don't know. I don't know that that's why the persecution is coming upon America. Is that why it's coming upon China? Certainly. You've got the church growing like gangbusters in these communist uh, enclaves, and it's being attacked, demonically attacked. They want to try and kill the church off. But I don't know that there's anything that Satan need fear from the West right now, the Western church. I don't want to, you know, rain on our parade. We still want to remain faithful to the Lord, and yet the persecution comes because of the growth of the church. Is the church in America really growing? I would agree that it's being refined, but is it growing? Christ's sacrificial death fully satisfied the Father's requirement for justice. But those who hated Christ were not satisfied and will never be satisfied. And so the church exists in part as that whipping boy for those that hate Christ to continue to persecute. And God wants us to be willing to accept that, to not, as Peter points it, regard it as something unusual. These fiery trials are for our benefit, and they do reflect, redound to God's glory. So the persecution of Christians highlights the ongoing relevance of Christ and the church. So when the church is persecuted, we know then that it is marking an antithesis between what God wants and what the world wants. And second, the persecution of Christians does tend toward purification of the church and growth of the church. And the judgment of God otherwise in extinguishing a, a flickering. You know, uh, Phil recently taught on that from Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, I will remove your lampstand. And that can come about through a variety of means. And yet when we as the church refuse to reflect the glory of God, refuse to live for His glory, refuse to be the church and endure the uh, unrighteous persecutions of the ungodly, if we are so caught up in our culture that we really forget that we ought to be reflecting Christ-likeness instead of an American ethos, then we've lost perspective. We are not honoring God by that. We're just honoring perhaps the posterity that our forefathers left us in this nation. So as we come to the table, let's make sure where our loyalties lie. They lie with God the Father, His Word, and if we're to be persecuted, we're to be persecuted for this for being faithful to the Lord, and then we will be uh, bestowing glory upon our God, in our God the Father in heaven. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your presence with us. And Lord, uh, none of us, we're not masochists, we're not sadists. We neither want to inflict pain on others, uh, nor do we want to uh, receive pain uh, without there being a meaning to it. And so we thank you, Father, for the knowledge that there is meaning to the suffering of the church. Uh, you grant meaning to that. 
And in the eyes of the world, yes, it's foolishness when Christians stand up for the faith and uh, risk and suffer persecution. And yet, Lord, that is uh, foolishness by God's reasoning. So we thank you for your presence with us, and we ask you to glorify yourself through uh, building up the body of your church on this earth, uh, to which we uh, love and aspire to be a thriving part. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.